Hello everyone. Hi, this is Rahul, your filmy Banya. And uh, today we have a very, very exclusive conversation uh, with one of the most dynamic writers in the United States. And uh, we are going to be speaking to Matt Ruff, the writer of HBO's most talked about show in uh, today's um, pop culture news sections all over the world, Lovecraft Country. Welcome, Matt, to our podcast. Well, thank you very much, and thank you for that lovely introduction. I, I don't know that I'm really that that <laughs> famous, but it's it's nice to nice to that you appreciate it. <laughs> well, well, it's the truth because uh, the show is now available in India on the Disney Plus Hotstar platform, and we can see the show uh, along with uh, you know our friends in the United States at the same time. So I thought we are an interconnected world. It's a show which is extremely hot and happening because it has Misha Green, Jordan Peele, J.J. Yeah. Abrams in it, and it has you. So uh, I think uh, your content, I mean. And uh, so, uh, many, many thanks for coming back to our podcast. Oh, no. Well, thank you for inviting me. This is a lot of fun. Oh, great. So what we'll do is uh, I'm going to talk about uh, uh, the show's uh, questions, which we have got some from our readers and fans people who have seen your first two episodes. Some people have read the book as well. So we have uh, some questions and sure. I'll ask you the questions you can answer and then we can proceed with your permission. Sure, please go ahead. So Matt, tell us, uh, how did you get the idea of developing and writing a book like Lovecraft Country? Uh, and uh, uh, in today's day and age, and why pick up a controversial author like H.P. Lovecraft for your title? Okay, so the initial idea, actually, it, it started back in 2007. I was invited by some TV producers who were fans of my, my earlier novel, Bad Monkeys, which you can sort of see the cover art behind me here. Oh, yes, of course, very much. They, they invited me to pitch ideas for original TV series. And one of the things I was interested in doing was a kind of X-Files show where you would have a recurring cast of characters having weekly paranormal adventures. But... I wanted to do a sort of a different uh, group of protagonists than you would ordinarily see in that. So instead of making it about white FBI agents in the 1990s, I came on the idea of making about a black family living in Chicago in the 1950s who owned a travel agency and published a fictional version of the Negro Motorist Green Book called the Safe Negro yes, Travel Guide, which was, you know, it was, there were these historic guidebooks for black motorists would tell them where they would be welcomed in the U.S. in the time when segregation was legal. Um, and so the idea was going to be that would be this family would get drawn into a series of real life weird tales and so they'd be dealing with sort of paranormal and fantasy horror but also at the same time navigating their way through the day-by-day -day more mundane terrors of life in the Jim Crow era and this is where H.P. Lovecraft came into it because I needed a sort of a thematic bridge between paranormal horror and cosmic horror and racism. And of course, Lovecraft is both. He's this incredibly influential horror writer, um, you know, yes, of course. huge contributions to the genre, but he was also a committed white supremacist and made no bones about it. So Lovecraft Country kind of became a it was a, it was like a double meaning. It was on the one hand, it's the the paranormal landscape where these you know fantastic supernatural monsters come from, but it's also in a sense white America where a different kind of monster comes from. And so it was sort of playing those two things off against each other. And another thing I wanted to do in the story was sort of 
capture the dilemma of specifically black nerds, but really more generally, you know, people of color who like genre fiction, but that don't always find that it loves them back. And that was, of course, particularly difficult in the 1950s. It's still an issue today, but it's starting to change, thank goodness. But and Lovecraft that's, very, is that's, a, that's a very no, interesting ahead. point. Yeah. No, I'm just saying, just to intervene for a second, I think that's what you are saying uh, is really important. And uh, uh, before, uh, just wanted to intervene because the Jim Crow era is something which might not be uh, known to Indian audience. Uh, can oh, you please sure, explain can... what is the Jim Crow era? Th that's all. That's so, yeah, basically after the Civil War, slavery ended, but uh, obviously discrimination against Black folks continued. And it was this... Mm -hmm. Generally, people growing up in, in the, the 1970s, 80s, as I did, that there was this idea that racism was a Southern phenomenon primarily because prior to the Civil Rights Movement in the 1960s, the, the South was very rigidly segregated. But what a lot of people don't realize is that the, the rest of the country was just as racist and just as discriminatory. It just was expressed somewhat differently. So in the South, you would have you know, extensive signs and, and laws specifying, you know, whites only here, black folks only here. There was a lot of official segregation. Um, meanwhile, in the North and the West, it was the same d deal where you, you know, there were neighborhoods where black folks couldn't live and there were plenty of hotels and restaurants that wouldn't serve them, but they was more covert where there wouldn't necessarily be signs warning you away. You would try and get a hotel room and you would just be told, oh, sorry, you know, we've rented our last room and or you'd you know, sit down at a restaurant somewhere and they'd, you know, if you were lucky, the waiter would just pretend he couldn't see you. And if you were unlucky, you'd have something happen like in that, that first episode of the TV show where you would actually literally get chased out yes, of town. Absolutely. Well, and, uh, yes, yeah, so that's, that's sort of the, the thing is that, that this, this is something that's been largely forgotten here is that, that there is this history of really violent, almost ethnic cleansing in the, in the North and West where large communities would, would drive out their black populations and then, you know, prevent new people from moving in. And that this was largely forgotten after the fact. So that was a story I wanted to get into with the series and the, and the book. So this, so this is the Jim Crow era you talked about. Right? Yeah. And okay. Jim Crow, I, 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 of course, I'm blanking on the exact, the, the exact origin of that term, but the idea was, yes, there were Jim Crow was, was specifically referred to like the laws in the South separating, mandating, well, you know, well. that certain areas were only for white people and certain areas were only for black folks. But the spirit of that, the era when this was going on, the spirit of that was spread across the entire country. And we just, we still don't entirely reckon with that. Good Lord. I think this was, uh, thank you very much, Matt, to educate us on uh, this piece of American history, because I think anybody who watches the show, and especially when you talked about uh, the Jim Crow era, a lot of Indians would uh, hear stories from their parents and grandparents of how Indians were treated by the British when British ruled India. The fascinating part, of course, is that in the US, this was happening close to 170, 180 years after their freedom. We're talking about 1950s and 60s. So America was a free country. Yeah. Then. And, uh, and so it's uh, something, and I think this is really important for an international viewer to understand what kind of world he or she is getting invested in. Thank you very much for explaining that. No, no, sure. And I mean, I, I think there's definite parallels between obviously the, the British attitudes in India and, and the way yes, black folks are yeah, treated in the US, of course. It's, it's part of the same, 
sad tradition, but um, yeah. So we, we, of course, had our own personal nuances on it, but yes, it, it, it's something that I think Indians would recognize, I'm sure. Yeah. Okay, so the next question is that your leading man, Atticus, is a 22-year-old who is busy fighting racism, but is also finding his own soul. And he seems to be a bit confused as well, at least in the first two episodes, one can make it out, that he's finding himself. And uh, although he is finding his true meaning, but he's also getting into, uh, in the second episode, we see that he gets this, uh, this whole scene in which he gets to know about, uh, because he's there to find his father, right? As yeah. he goes to, so he's looking for himself. Uh, so my question is, which real life figures, if any, inspired you to write Atticus? Well, that's interesting. I mean, Atticus for me, I, it, it was, he was just always sort of an everyman character. I mean, I think the, the, the initial inspiration in, in the novel, he's, he's driving home from Florida alone in the opening scene. And I think that that was the very first scene I thought of was the idea of this guy coming home for, for you know, to, to find out something that had gone on with his dad and then getting pulled over by a state policeman and harassed and, and specifically the guy searching the car and finding he's got a collection of science fiction books in the back trunk. And, you know, the idea that black people would have any interest in science fiction is just bizarre to a lot of folks. And so that the, the idea of the policeman finding some like, is this even your car? You've got these books, like you read this stuff, like what's going on. And so for me, that was sort of the, the, the moment that I just, as soon as I thought of that, I kind of had a sense of who Atticus was, that he was just this sort of really universal figure. Um, and so not so much based on a specific person, but just based on an idea that, that he's, he's someone who doesn't fit the mold of what a lot of people think a black person is, like the idea that you would have a, a black wow. nerd. Fantastic. Yeah. 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 Very nice. Uh, my next question is quite controversial, but uh, controversial okay, because, uh, so the Negro Motorist Green Book is a seminal reference point in the mm -hmm. 1960s and 50s America of the Southern states, as they call it, right? Uh, it in, uh, uh, so uh, I think that's correct. Well, actually, the, that this is again, when I was talking about the difference between Southern and Northern racism, it, in, it's often thought that way, but the truth is that you, you didn't really need the Green Book as much when you were traveling in the South because it was quite clear where you were and weren't welcome. Where the Green Book okay. was important was traveling in other parts of the country where you couldn't be sure. Um, I mean, the Green okay, Book covered okay. the Southern states, but yeah, no, it was, it was much more valuable like in a place like Montana or Iowa <laughs> where, you know, in theory, you know, people pretended that there was no racism, but of course it was, and, and you didn't okay. necessarily have signs saying, don't come here, so. So this is, uh, so the part of the question is, so it in many ways institutionalizes racism, uh, existence of a book like this. Uh, mm -hmm. Do you feel that the current socioeconomic environment will have similar, will have similar reference points in the future? I mean, if I, if I understand what you're saying, yeah, I, it was, the, the Green Book was even controversial at the time. I know that, that there were, particularly as the civil rights movement really got going in the 50s, there were people who were annoyed because they were like, you shouldn't be, you shouldn't be creating this book that's sort of facilitating the idea that there are only certain places that were welcome. You should be pushing to make people welcome everywhere. And, mm -hmm. um, but, but what fascinated me about it was it's like, yes, the, the long-term goal of black Americans was to gain equality. 
But in the meantime, they still had to live their lives and they still had to find their way. So it was like, yeah, yeah you, can, you can certainly make that argument that you shouldn't be making accommodation with, with racism. But at the same time, you, you still need to know where can I stop and sleep safely if I don't want to just sleep in my car on the side of the road. And I think that that tension is always going to exist as long as there's a, a, a right struggle. It's like, yes, there's, you do need to push back and change society. But at the same time, you still have to deal with the realities in the moment. And um, there have been people talking about, yes, doing, doing versions of this today, just to sort of, you know, like little guidebooks or, or things where you can just warn people about specific dangers that they should be aware of. But I don't know that those two things necessarily have to be in conflict. It's like, it's not like, because if you actually look at the green books, I've seen some of them, um, he was always very clear that, that the long-term goal is I'm, I'm desperate for the day when this book will not need to be published anymore, when it won't be necessary. And that was always his, his hope. But in the meantime, you still, you still can't just drive across the country and, and expect to be welcomed anywhere. And it can be dangerous if you go to the wrong place. So um, yeah, I, but I, mm -hmm. I certainly see that that, that that tension exists in any situation where people are not being treated fairly. Okay. So, uh, because just for my audience, the Green Book is actually a book which guides people of color to where to stay and where they are welcome and mm -hmm. entertained when they're traveling. Just a small introduction to my viewers. Uh, so, the yeah, the, the, the Green Book was, the guy, there was a guy named Victor Green. He was a, a, actually a, a postman in, I believe he lived in New Jersey. And um, he was inspired by an earlier generation of travel guides that were aimed at Jewish travelers who had similar difficulty finding accommodation. And the initial guide, I think, was published in 1936. And it just listed areas in the, the New York and New Jersey, the metropolitan area that, you know, so that visitors to the region could, could find it was just a strict little list of hotels, restaurants, you know, beauty parlors and other other places that you, you know, a traveler would find useful that were were known to be welcoming to black travelers. And most of them would be in black neighborhoods. Um, but anyway, it proved really popular. So what part of what he did, he would correspond with other black mail carriers in other parts of the country and have them send him wow. tips. And uh, that's like, as, it sounds like yeah. a sounds like a prehistoric social media platform. Well, very much so. Yeah, he was. He would. He would talk to other folks, have them send him tips, and so very soon it became. It covered the whole country, and it would, wow. I think it was. It was forty-eight states at the time, not not fifty, but. Um, and then eventually, in later versions, they also started listing sites in Canada and Mexico as well. Um, oh wow! And he. The Esso, the Esso gas station franchise, which was one of the, the few uh, franchises that actually yes, welcomed, yes. They, they encouraged black ownership of their gas stations. He had wow. them carrying copies of the guide later on. So it became an institution. And there were other less well-known guides that took off after this that, that tried to cover the same market. But basically, yeah, they were just, it was a, it was a, it would have like little articles in it, but the, the body of it was just organized by state. You could flip to whatever, um, you know, city you were planning to travel to and look up and it would have a list of however many, yeah, this hotel and this hotel, and here's the address. And, you know, maybe here's a phone number you can call. And it's, it's really interesting going back and looking now, first of all, it, there are just, there are some States where there's maybe four entries in the whole state. And then there are other places like, you know, like New York, where you've got pages of entries. Um, but it, it sort of gives you this, if you look at it, you can sort of get a sense of 
where where the the communities of color were at that time and then there were there were other you know there were there was a, a type of thing called a traveler's home which was basically uh where where there were not hotels that would take people in sometimes people would open their own homes to travelers and let them stay in a back bedroom and it was sort of you could reserve if you were going to go up into like you know vermont or some other state that was mostly white where you just wouldn't expect to find regular accommodation. So it was this network of people trying to help each other out. Uh, and that's, that's, the, that's the Green Book. And then once well, the Civil Rights Act passed, uh, it, it ceased publication and very quickly was forgotten. And then began, there was this period of rediscovery beginning in the 2000s. I first read about it in a book called Sundown Towns by a guy named James Lowen. And now well, it's sort of come back again. Yeah. And sundown town is the term used in your show, in the book as well, right? Uh, when, um, you know, yeah. when, uh, a sundown town historically is a town, and again, this is, this is actually a Northern phenomenon, not a Southern phenomenon. It's a town that is whites only by, you know, not, you know, it's like deliberately whites only. And the specific idea is that it, it's a place where in particular after sunset, people of color are not welcome and, and would, would likely be met with violence. And, um, again, there was this, this wave of ethnic cleansing in the United States between the 1890s and the 1950s where uh, not just black folks, but Chinese workers on the West Coast, that was where it actually started, where they would be driven out of communities and, uh, and then kept out with violence afterwards. And um, in, in, in a lot of areas, there were signs posted saying, you know, so-and-so, don't let the sun set on you here. And it was basically a, a, a warning. And all of this, again, all of this kind of got forgotten that as the civil rights movement took off, those signs disappeared and there were no historical records kept, but people remembered that they had existed and all white communities still were, were very vigilant. And, you know, and the thing is like, people, people just assume what they grow up with is normal. So if you grow up in a town and the only people you ever see are white, and then you see somebody who obviously doesn't belong because they don't look like you or the people you live with. It's just natural to be suspicious and call police. Even if you're not trying to be racist, it becomes self-reinforcing and you don't have to know the racist history of your town to sort of keep that tradition going. So it's part of the reason why this history is important to bring up because a lot of people just don't understand. There's, well, um, there's a reason well, why. Yeah. Well, I've, please finish. Please finish your thought. Well, just that, yeah, it's, it's important to people to know that it's, it's not an accident that, that we still have cities and towns and neighborhoods where, you know, black folks don't feel welcome and, and where, you know, it's not that they didn't like the weather or they didn't like the climate or whatever. <laughs> it was just that yeah, they I knew it was dangerous. Yeah. See, uh, so I'll tell you what Indians would really, you know, attest to. So you have this character called Sheriff Hunt in the first episode. Oh, yeah. Uh, and uh, so, you know, Indian uh, British history, uh, if you look at it, if you read it, there are instances of, um, so for example, one of the most hated figures in Indian history is a gentleman called General Dyer. Now, General Dyer was posted in a small state in India and uh, called Punjab. Uh, it's a very popular state. A lot of people across, uh, you've heard about that. You have the Sikh family, uh, Sikh uh, community members, people who wear a mm -hmm. turban uh, are from that uh, state. And he ordered a virtual shoot down massacre of close to 1000 Indians or maybe more uh, right. while they were listening to a rally on, Pat 
on uh, you know patriotism without even giving them a a, a signal or a warning that they're about yeah. to fire and they and what they did was it was a closed area and they covered the entire exit points and they just started shooting people and they killed close to hundreds of people in that and so that character general dyer is what i saw in hunt yeah because and you know th that's also our next uh, question actually matt uh, which stems from this <laughs> is that in many ways uh, this is my question <laughs> if i okay. might i felt that the real monsters are the police enforcers I'm rather sure. than the the other monsters uh, themselves so what is your view of this i mean yeah the the, the question in the in the novel is like which is the bigger threat to your safety or sanity the monster under the bed or the yeah the white sheriff who pulls you over right before sunset and yes, it, yes. it's not really a hard question to answer i i always felt that the the historical uh, you know uh, stuff was a lot scarier because it's real and and we're still living with the legacy of it and in some cases the reality of it but yeah i mean one of the things i get into in uh in the novel is this uh very it, it now it's it's i, I want to say famous but in fact it, it it was largely forgotten and not taught in schools for a long time is this this incident the tulsa race rider the tulsa massacre where uh, in 1921 um there was a there was a basically a, an incident where um a, a, a white mob who were frustrated at their inability to lynch one black prisoner in being held in the Tulsa, Oklahoma uh, city courthouse, basically turned on and attacked the black neighborhood of Greenwood, which was this very prosperous black neighborhood in Tulsa. And basically a mob of, you know, thousands of white people ran into this, into this neighborhood indiscriminately shooting people and burned 35 square blocks of it to the ground. And, um, uh, and you know it it was it was it was you know it was one of the most horrific incidents of violence in the United States history and then after it it ended, no one was held accountable and there was this sort of again this period of historical amnesia where it was not covered the anniversary of it was not covered in the white press in Tulsa it was not taught in school textbooks and it was only many years later, like you know in the 1970s that this historical amnesia began to break and people began to talk about it but what's really ironic I mean really interesting is that Tulsa despite this this you know period of amnesia it's still much better documented than many other incidents that probably happened around the same time where because the reason part of the reason we remember Tulsa at all is that this attempt to expel all of the black residents of Tulsa failed they killed a lot of people but they didn't drive anybody out and they did rebuild afterwards and there were plenty of other incidences in that time where it was a smaller, it might be, you know, a massacre or a, a, a riot against maybe 30 residents in a smaller town. And once those people were driven out, nobody kept records. There was nobody left to tell the story. And so, again, this is why there are just big swaths of the United States where you don't expect to see anyone who isn't white because that, that happened. <laughs> well, um, um, you're, yeah, please finish your thought. No, no, that's, yeah, that, that, that is the finish of my thought. Yeah, okay, okay. Now, what I was saying was that Tulsa is very well documented in the new Watchmen TV show. Yeah, uh, that was interesting. That Yes, I was about to say that when you said, uh, because, um, uh, see, uh, this discussion um, is also getting at the mind of an author like yourself and how strongly you feel about this subject. And that's possibly the reason you have, put in so much of effort in writing this out. And uh, 
I think in today's day and age, it's very important to get the vision of the author. What was the motivating factor for you to come and write this? And uh, in many ways, it educates people across the world about uh, things they don't know, but it uh, connects to them in some way because of humanity. And these issues are universal issues. They're not just confined to one country. Right. Uh, and uh, you know, uh, but what is uh, really shocking to me is that all of this is happening when the U.S. is a purely independent country. It's not that it's occupied by a foreign force. Uh, this is something which is happening under the nose of a free. And by the way, India is also not absolved of this. We have seen very major clashes in last 20, 30, 50 years between Hindus and Muslims in India. There are re religious mm -hmm. and ethnic clashes. So it's not just confined to one country. But I think uh, it's really nice that you are so motivated to talk about this period, which is almost forgotten. I mean, when it comes to, uh, you know, the global mindset of what's going around. And now this Black Lives Matter thing happens in the U.S. And suddenly the debate is reignited. I mean, to me, it, it, it's part of a larger, I mean, all of my novels in some way or another, I, I, I'm really more of a generalist in terms of I like using fiction to get myself into the headspace of people who come from different backgrounds than I do and, and face different challenges than I do. And, you know, they, they've all, all of my books have some sort of personal meaning as well. But I think the, the driving factor is just that the general process of empathy. And I think for me, it was like part of what, drew me in initially was learning about uh, the Green Book, learning about this sort of largely forgotten story of black folks in the day sort of coming up with ways to deal with what they were, you know, to deal with the the realities of life in the era when segregation was legal. Like while they were, again, the, the, the long-term goal was equality, but it just fascinated me the, the the courage and resourcefulness of these ordinary folks trying to live their lives in a country that really didn't have a place for them and didn't want them in a lot of ways. And that was what drew me in. It's not it's not so much political as just more of a, a human interest in, you know, Superb. this is a fascinating story Fantastic. that I haven't I haven't heard enough about and and you know so once I get into it and then and then once I'm writing it, it's it's uh, yeah, I want to know. I want to get inside the heads and the emotions of the characters and understand where they're coming from. And for that, I really need to know a lot about their own personal history. So Tulsa for me in part was just a way of, you know, the, the Atticus's father and uncle are originally from Tulsa. They came to Chicago after the, the Tulsa massacre. And so that writing about that became a personal way for me of also just understanding why Atticus's father in particular is so, angry and and why he ended up the way he is is and part of it is just his own father is is murdered in front of him during the mm -hmm. tulsa massacre so yeah for me it's 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 not so much about a political agenda as sort of i'm interested in this area i'm interested in these people and these human beings and what drives them and so i have to know the history and i have to think about Sorry. what it what its significance is and um, but yeah, it's, it's not just one thing for me. I, you know, I'm, I'm, there are other subjects where I, I get just as invested. So, um, but for me, that's, that's what it's about. It's more of a, a general interest in, in other people. Okay. So now let's move on to the show, uh, mm -hmm. as well. Uh, we have some fan questions and so how did the book attract the attention of Jordan Peele and JJ Abrams and <laughs> Misha Green? And what do you think resonated with them? 
Um, so yeah, this was what was funny. So I, as I say, I initially did try to pitch this in 2007 as a TV show and I couldn't get the people I was talking to to get interested. And that's when I decided to make it into a book because, and I, I, I basically just, I loved the idea of the story and I wanted to do something with it. But obviously I had the idea in my head that, well, if the book is good enough, maybe it can serve as a proof of concept that, that this can work as a show as well. And it was basically for once in my life, the timing was perfect. Jordan had just finished working on Get Out, um, but it had not been released or even advertised yet. And he was thinking about what he wanted to do next. And I got a phone call from my agent in Hollywood. And he said, you know, I, I got an odd phone call. Jordan Peele wants to talk to you about Lovecraft Country. And he was puzzled because at that point, Jordan was primarily known for comedy. And so my agent's like, yeah, he's mostly a comedy guy, but apparently he's looking to break into <laughs> horror and said that he's interested in this. And so I'm like, fine. And then I found out that Misha Green was going to be on the phone call as well. And, and that excited me because I had seen her previous series, Underground, which is basically yeah, a great escape yeah, set on a, a slave plantation. And so she's a great storyteller. And, and I was also attracted to the fact that she had figured out the, the magic words to use to get TV executives interested in the, in the idea without running away screaming from it. So I'm like, well, great. If Misha's on board, then she'll know how to pitch this. And so I had a phone conversation with them where it was just, they were excited by the story for the same reasons I was. Um, it was just a, they, they loved the combination of, of sort of the, the, real, the real world horror and the history with this sort of more fantastic science fiction fantasy horror stuff that it's, it's just a fun combination to put that all together and, and to, it makes it richer while still allowing you to say things about the real world. Um, so Jordan got that right away. We were on the same wavelength, Misha got it. And then I, you know, a few weeks later, the first trailer to Get Out appeared on YouTube. And as soon as I saw that, I was like, oh, of course, this is why Jordan's interested. He's doing the same thing. He's been thinking the same things I have. And Lovecraft Countries offers a way to like do that on an even broader can canvas because it's got all of these different characters and it's doing multiple uh, horror tropes and, and reimagined stories rather than just focusing on one like, like Get Out did. So that was, that was how the interest came. And then of course the success of Get Out is what made it very easy for uh, Jordan yes, to then absolutely. turn around and go to HBO and say, here's what I want to do next. What do you think? And HBO was like, oh, of course, Mr. Peel, we're happy to have you, have you <laughs> doing this. So, um, and I, I, I don't remember exactly how J, where J.J. Abrams came into it because he's the one member of this group that I have never actually spoken to directly. You know, he's sort of, mm. J.J.'s kind of like God. He's out there somewhere, but I don't actually get to speak to him personally. I've spoken to Jordan. I've met, I've met Misha, but uh, J.J. is still like, you know, maybe before I die, I'll get to shake hands with him. But, um, but I think he, he, he and Jordan were probably just working together at that point anyway. They were probably interested in each other's stuff. So, um, but that's how it happened. Okay. Uh, well, tell me something. Uh, uh, you must have seen the show, most of it, what most of us haven't. How faithful is it to the book? And uh, is it, uh, it's, a, it's obviously a, a tough question to answer, but uh, would you say that uh, the, the, the show is an exact reflection of the book? So actually I have not seen the whole series yet. I've, I've, I basically I got to see preview the first five episodes, the same five episodes that, that all of the, the reviewers got to see. Um, but mm -hmm. I was not involved in the day-to-day -day production. So I, and I can't really talk about what I know. Like there, there are certain things I can, I can sort of guess at, but it's, it's still top secret. But 
Um, what I have seen of it and, and what I know, I guess the way I would put it is it, it's, it's a very faithful rendition of the spirit wow, of the fantastic. book without, without feeling bound to, and that, this was what I said to Misha when we, you know, when she first took over the project and we were talking, it was like, you know, here's my research, here are my notes about what I was thinking when I wrote the novel, but I don't, mm -hmm. you know, I don't expect you to do a carbon copy. That would be kind of boring. Mm -hmm. I mean, I've, I've got my version of the story already. What I want is, you know, take, take what you want from that and feel free to build on it and do your own thing with it. And because I trusted her that to, to do, you know, cool things. And I, I wanted to be surprised and see things that I hadn't thought of. And that, you know, from what I've seen turned out to be the, the right advice to give her. So, um, the, the first two episodes hew fairly closely to the, the action in the opening chapter of the novel, but even there, things are moved around. Um, you know, the, there, there are certain necessary changes to, to sort of work in the visual medium of television. So an obvious example being in the novel, Atticus is driving home alone from uh, Florida at the opening of the, the novel. The problem is on a, on a TV show, unless you're using voiceover, you cannot have the guy thinking stuff. So Misha puts him on a bus where he has other people he can talk to and specifically another black passenger. And then there's this wonderful opening tracking shot where you can see this sign saying, you know, this portion of the bus for members of the colored race. So right away, without having to do any explanatory dialogue, you immediately get, okay, this is the reality that we're dealing with. And that, that was just such a clever translation that, you know, because I don't work in a visual medium would not have occurred to me if I were adapting my own work. And so there's lots of things like that where things that might take several paragraphs of explanation in the novel in the, in the show, you could just do with one image. And um, so that's been really amazing to see and, so, and seeing, you know, know they're not is, afraid um, to, yeah, they're not afraid know, to take liberties. Well, um, I think this is really a change because a lot of authors complain that the adaptation is not exactly what they wanted. And here we see a very collaborative effort. In fact, the name of the show is the name of your book. Simple yeah. as that. <laughs> so, you know, there is no uh, two questions yeah. about that. And uh, yeah, please, you were saying something. No, no, no. But no, it's, it's, yeah, it's true. I mean, I, I, Part of it is I just, I'm in good hands. I wouldn't, you know, there's nothing really Don't that I wouldn't feel motivated to complain about, but it's just, yeah, it's, it's, but just also as a practical matter, you, you have to, unless you are going to do the adaptation yourself, which I'm simply not qualified to do, you have to trust the people you're handing the story off to. And I, I do understand author dissatisfaction. There are terrible adaptations, but even there, it's sort of like, you know, you, you, you've got your version of the story. You've just got to hand it off and trust people and cross your fingers. And, I, I just happen to be fortunate in this case that the people who are adapting are really talented and, and know what they're doing and have interesting things to say. So, Okay, so uh, now some questions. Uh, uh, something, uh, uh, now we would like, we are off uh, the show and everything. I want to ask something, uh, tell us about yourself. Uh, uh, how have you been working? What are, what are your future projects? And how did you come to the medium of writing? Uh, I read that you are a Cornelian, so yep. I know a couple of Cornelians, but uh, you went to a great college and a great university. How did you transition in becoming a writer like this? So let me go back. Yeah, let me answer that last question first. So um, my, yes, my father is a, was a Lutheran minister originally from the Midwestern U.S. Um, my mother was a missionary's daughter. Uh, she was born in uh, Southern Brazil. Um, 
The family moved when she was still very young to Argentina. She grew up there and came to the United States when she was 23, um, eventually met and married my father. And our house in New York City was basically Ellis Island for all the other South American relatives coming north. So I grew up surrounded by um, you know, this very multicultural and argumentative family. So I learned at an early age that, that there was value in understanding people from different cultures who didn't see things the way I did and, and were, were not afraid to voice their own opinions. So that, I think, goes a long way toward explaining my interest as a writer. Um, and as far as becoming a writer, I just, I, I'm one of those people who always knew that that was what I wanted to do. It's like I came wired from the factory to want to tell stories. And I, I you know, my parents were both very supportive of me. My mother in particular um, got me a typewriter when I was very young and taught, you know, had one of my Argentinian aunts teach me how to touch type. And so I spent my childhood and adolescence teaching myself how to tell stories. And I always was drawn wow. towards longer form fiction. Um, even when I tried to write short stories, I'd end up stringing them together into longer narratives. So by the time I got to Cornell, I was sort of, I, I had actually already like, you know, more than a decade's practice under my belt and I was ready to start trying to write something that I could actually sell. And very impractically, I decided to, to take a degree in English with a concentration in creative writing, which because I, I had no interest in teaching, it was like I couldn't have done anything with that if I had not become a novelist. So it's very likely if, I, if my writing career hadn't worked out, I would have been an Ivy League graduate who was working at a video store or something like that because I, just, <laughs> I didn't really have that, a backup that, plan. That, 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 just to intervene, that sounds like a movie in itself, <laughs> you know, an Ivy League yeah, graduate working at a video store. Yeah, I would, I would, you know, I would, that's the thing. When I talk to younger people today, I just warn them, it's like, don't, please do not use my life as a, as a blueprint because it's a terrible idea. It, you really, you really need to assume that you will not be able to make a living writing, especially today. Um, but I got really lucky. One of my teachers at Cornell was a woman named Allison Laurie, who uh, was a, you know, she had just won the Pulitzer Prize and, and wow. She liked my work and said, you know, when you, when you finish this novel you're working on, here's my agent in, in New York City, Melanie Jackson, send it to her and, you know, see what she, she, she says. And so, yeah, my senior thesis at Cornell was, was Fool on the Hill, was my first published novel. And I sent the manuscript to Melanie and she liked it and sold it six months after I graduated Cornell University. So I basically went directly from I've had one real job in my life. There was this brief period after I graduated when I was living with my girlfriend in Connecticut and I was working at this bookstore cafe called the Reader's Feast in Hartford, Connecticut. And then, you know, after the book sold to Atlantic Monthly Press, I, I gave my notice and, and I've basically been working as a novelist ever since. And I, wow. you know, I was poor. I was poor for a very long time in my 20s. I don't write very quickly, but I just... I kept getting these lucky breaks where, uh, you know, I didn't have children. I didn't, I, I never learned to drive. So I didn't have car to, I didn't have to buy gasoline. And, you know, I, I've always been able to live fairly cheaply in, in those early years. And the other thing that happened is Fool in the Hill was purchased and translated by Karl Hanser Verlag in Germany. And uh, it's funny that for a long time, it was actually more popular in Germany than I was in the United States. So that, the foreign money also helped like keep me afloat while I was getting my career going. And so, and then finally by the, the 2000s, I started getting enough traction and I had enough books behind me that I, I was able mm -hmm. to sort of make a, a real go at being a, a, a writer. And 
but it's been a it's been a long time and and I was poor for a long time and I was very very lucky but that is basically how it happened so um no, again, I'm don't, sure don't follow sure. my example <laughs> <laughs> no but uh, but it's not going to be for long you're going to make a lot of money we can see that in your future endeavors and Matt, just to round up, uh, any message for Indian fans? Um, not, you know, all I all I would say is thank you very much. I, I you know, I, it's it's nice to to put another country on my my list of of uh, you know fans. It's it's just I. This is the wonderful thing. My wife keeps a map of all of my foreign edition and translations for each of my novels. And it's, it's nice that when we were able to, you know, get a, get a new one, it's particularly such a large audience. So, and uh, so, yeah, India, I'm, I'm just very pleased to, to be able to, to oh. chat with you folks. So nice to be on the well, radar. Well, great. So uh, this was our interaction with Matt Ruff from Seattle, uh, the writer of Lovecraft Country, the book which has been adapted into a big TV show by HBO, which is currently streaming on Disney Hotstar in India. And two episodes are already there in the season of 10 episodes, eight are about to be aired. And uh, all these uh, episodes are available uh, with English subtitles. And uh, it's a great study of uh, racism in, a, uh, in the world's most, pop, uh, most uh, you know, rich as well as most prosperous country. And it talks about a period of time which has not been mentioned many times. And uh, many thanks, Matt, for joining us. And here, uh, just thank to you give so you much little, for having me. Uh, just to give you a little heads up, uh, our podcast is called Filmy Bania, and uh, I'm based out of New Delhi in India. And uh, uh, please do subscribe us on YouTube and I share know. our message. And uh, so uh, so nice and so enriching has been this discussion. Uh, thank you so much. Thank you very much.